Welcome to the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Gross, Ironman champion, PhD in women's history, and founder and CEO of Feisty Media. I started this show because I wanted to cut through the BS of diet culture and fitness culture and actually learn from high achieving women at the top of their game who have figured out how to feel and perform their best at every stage of life. So I chat with experts, elite athletes, and leaders who have learned to succeed despite the massive gender data gap in exercise and medical science and product development. Every episode is filled with information, advice, and anecdotes that will help you fulfill your potential as an athlete, mom, leader, or business owner. And listen up. If you don't subscribe to our women's performance newsletter, you are definitely missing out. It's totally free. So head over to womensperformance.com and subscribe now. That's womensperformance.com. This podcast is a production of Feisty Media. Hello, Feisties. Oh my gosh. Today's guest is one of my favorites of all time. So, Here's the story. I was in Tucson on a workcation and a friend of mine, Catherine Bertine, who some of you may be familiar with. Um, she's the author of Stand. She was a pro cyclist, writer, sports journalist, advocate for women's sports. Anyway, my guest isn't Catherine, although I should have Catherine on at some point. Anyway, Catherine was hosting a panel on women's sports in Tucson. And one of the panelists was our guest today, sports journalist Sarah Spain. At the time, I was not familiar with Sarah, but when I heard her speak, I immediately thought, this is the voice that women's sports really needs. As an aside, during the panel, someone actually said, Sarah Spain for president. <laughs> and I couldn't agree more, actually. actually. Maybe if we had like a president of women's sports, that would be Sarah. I don't know. Um, but she was so well-spoken on the topic that I thought, this is someone that I really need to have on the podcast. So Sarah is an Emmy and Peabody award-winning sports journalist. She has spent more than a decade at ESPN, holding many roles, including radio, podcasting, television, and writing for ESPNW. She is on the Gatorade Women's Advisory Board and is a co-owner of the Chicago Red Stars, which is part of the National Women's Soccer League. I was impressed with Sarah on several levels. One being the fact that as a female sports journalist, she's had to figure out how to succeed in a heavily male-dominated space. She's received an insane amount of negative feedback from trolls online um, and, and definitely has the wisdom of someone who has weathered that and carried on with confidence because ultimately she is great at what she does. I was most impressed with Sarah's deep understanding of the business side of women's sports, and I really wanted to get her take on this wave of popularity that we're seeing in women's sports right now. This conversation with Sarah is for anyone who may need advice on how to navigate male-dominated spaces or how to say, stay strong in the face of negative feedback or trolls online. Um, and it's for anyone interested in helping ensure that women's sports continue to grow in both investment and media coverage and how we can all be part of that. Sarah's Instagram bio simply says, unfuckwithable. And I think that pretty much says it all. <laughs> so before we talk to Sarah, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Amino Co. 
as a casual CrossFitter who has entered perimenopause, taking on extra amino acids before and during my workouts has become a key part of maintaining and building muscle for my sport, for my health, and for my longevity. And the obvious icing on the cake is that Amino Co supports the podcast. So check out the link in our bio to place your order. Sarah, good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're here. Um, okay, I want to start. I usually start with my guests talking about um, some of your athletic career, um, if you will, because I think that like sport empowers us all so much the things that we do later in life, especially as women. So I know in high school, you played hockey and basketball and you eventually put, did heptathlon in college, um, yeah. which is wild. So uh, tell us about that. Yeah, field hockey, uh, not ice hockey. So, oh, um, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I'm field Canadian, hockey, so like my assumption. Yeah, you immediately think hockey. Yeah, no, yeah. that that first boat gave you away. So uh, <laughs> no one was no one was wondering where you were from. Um, yeah, field hockey, basketball, and track. I also did tennis, uh, USTA, growing up, and horseback riding and golf. Like literally anything and everything, my sister and I would do in the backyard or take take lessons in or ask our parents about. Um, and it's funny, like growing up, I was well aware that sports gave me a ton of confidence, especially because I was awkward. I was six feet tall already when I was 12, uh, stopped growing. So I'm still six feet, but um, braces, frizzy hair, you know, all the stuff, not a lot of interest from boys. And even though I was confident as a, a student and, you know, loved being kind of class clown and make jokes, um, being able to find my body as something useful and as, as something that helped me be great at sports made me less insecure about how tall I was and more thankful for it from a young age. And then it wasn't until later that I realized like leadership, working with people you don't like, working for coaches you don't like, um, failing and getting right back at it, all these things that I learned from sports that a lot of people who never dive in don't even notice that they're not getting great experience in. Um, and I think those of us who played our whole lives, like by the time we get out in the quote unquote real world and we're dealing with other people, we're like, oh, totally different mindset than someone who walks into a room. Like I think a lot of athletes do and immediately think, okay, how do we get everyone to crush this? Right. <laughs> how do we get everyone to come together? How do I take the lead? How do I find people's strengths? How do I make them better? Like that kind of stuff is so, uh, uh, such a big part of sport that if you never are part of teams like that, maybe you, you miss out. But yeah, I did. Um, basketball field hockey and track in high school got recruited for all of them actually and ended up um, wanting to go to Cornell University which was this great balance of division one uh, sports where it could be a little fish in a big pond and have tough competitions but also great academics um, so yeah heptathlete do you know uh, what's in a heptathlete um I should yes. <laughs> but I feel okay, like so every Olympic cycle I'm re-reminded right well a lot of people are like wait heptathlon is that the one where you like run and then shoot the gun I'm like, no, that's modern <laughs> triathlon. I'm not that uh, totally bad. Different. <laughs> um, so heptathlon is long jump, high jump, hurdles, 800, 200, shot put, and javelin. So um, sort of sums up my life. Jack of all trades, master of none. You don't have to be the best at anything, but you're pretty good at all of them. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I have so many questions about that. But I do <laughs> Did you ever notice when you were a kid um, that, you know, you had less opportunities because you were a girl or did you ever question like, how come I do the heptathlon and the guys do the decathlon? 
I asked about the decathlon. So uh, there isn't heptathlon or pentathlon in high school, um, but my coach kind of noticed what I was good at in high school and was like, this is something you should consider for college. And you could start competing in them early in things like junior Olympics. So he borrowed a javelin from a nearby college. He had been a decathlete in, in college and taught me how to do it so that I could enter and compete um at some at some meets in high school and i remember asking wait a minute we don't why don't we get to do decathlon and then i realized that pole vault was part of that and i was oh. like i'm good right I suck at pole vault uh yeah pole vaulters are like usually gymnasts who are like very lean and don't, and you know they have to get their entire body up and over uh that that's not my jam so um i felt okay about it uh as far as resources go you know i was really lucky to be raised somewhere that um, had a lot of resources, had a lot of um, opportunity for both girls and, and boys. And, you know, my parents are lawyers, they have their own law practice. And the fact that they were partners, and both of their names were on the practice, and they had, in fact, left a previous firm early in their careers, because the the lawyer there was not willing to have any interest in my mom becoming a lawyer there. He only thought women should be paralegals, oh. despite her going to law school. Um, I kind of was just infused with this idea of parity and equality from a young age. And it wasn't until later that I really started to pay attention. Yeah. I, of course, noticed things, especially at, at the collegiate level, but I wasn't necessarily up to date on things like, well, Title IX actually says that's not allowed, right? Mm -hmm. I just sort of took it in stride and was grateful for what we had. Um, there were a couple moments um, in, in college in particular, the football players were allegedly distracted by the track athletes who came to the weight room in spandex after, after our, um, after our practice and wanted to force us to change out of what we practiced into into regulation weight room gear so they wouldn't be distracted we're wearing spandex and stuff because we're jumping into pits full of sand we're running hurdles we're doing things that it's easier and better to train in something more similar to what we compete in which is singlets and spandex right and so the waste of time to go change and so when they told us that i immediately started a petition and got everyone from the boys and girls team and other sports to sign it that said, this is not our responsibility. It's the responsibility of those athletes and those coaches to get them to focus on what they're doing. It's not our fault that you can't focus. And within that day, I think everyone in the athletic department was like, oops, this was the wrong call. We definitely shouldn't have asked for this. They, we are in the wrong here. And that was the end of that. So I think you there were moments. You started the petition? Yeah. Wow. You were an advocate from like... Yeah. I mean, age. I think, I think it wasn't intentional. It's just when something came up, I was like, no, that's not right. Um, in high school, actually, I was supposed to take uh, gym class through freshman and sophomore year mm -hmm. um, for state regulation, but I had band and chorus and I was a varsity three sport athlete. Even as a freshman, I had gotten moved up to varsity for field hockey and I was on varsity track. So I couldn't take all my classes. They were, they were, I was actually not having a lunch period in order to take all my classes and band and chorus and gym. And so I actually looked up the state law. I found all the reasons why it says we're required to take gym. I outlined all the things that I was actually getting from varsity sports that were alleged to be the reason that you need to take gym, presented it to my school, and they let me take early bird gym as a pass fail, which meant I just needed to take more than 50% of them. So I had to get to school early to take it and get it out of the way. But it was the same thing. I was like, this just doesn't seem right. I shouldn't be prevented from like the school stuff I want to do 
to do something that I'm already definitely achieving by virtue of being an athlete year round. So I guess every once in a while I got either mildly litigious or uh, sort of an activist uh, brain going. Yeah, you got feisty. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I could. A friend of mine told me the, the other day that apparently, and I don't remember this at all, but they tried to start a ball hockey league in my elementary school in fourth grade, nice. and they only let boys play. And apparently, yeah. like I was straight to the principal's office. Like, Love why, it. Why don't I get to play? Which is funny that I don't yeah. remember that at all. But I'm like, oh yeah, that that like rings true. <laughs> I even I even started a cheerleading team. In junior high, I didn't want to be a cheerleader. I just saw that other places had it. And I was like, that's BS. Why don't I get to be a cheerleader? I could do round offs and, you know, handsprings. So I started for like literally four games. That was it. But, you know, it was like the principle of the matter has always been like, if I'm not allowed to do something, I'm mad about it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So you must have had like your work cut out for you then as you went into the world of sports journalism. Um, How did you, you know, how did you decide to take that on? And at the time, did you realize you were entering such a male dominated environment? So. I took a very circuitous route. I actually was an English major at Cornell because I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. And my parents were like, you should major in something that's a little broader than straight drama. Mm -hmm. And also because of track, everything was at the same time as all the school plays, all the drama stuff, which had been the same in high school. I did the, I did the, um, talent show. I did my band and chorus stuff, but I couldn't be in the actual school place because they're all at the same time as sports and sports took precedent. So I knew that's something I wanted to do later, but it was, um, it was always a bit of a balance. So I took all sorts of classes, accent classes, acting classes, all the stuff while also, um, still competing and figured oh, I'll just move to LA when my sports career is done. I'm not going to go to the Olympics. I'm not going to be professional. So I'll be done after college. I'll move to LA and give it a shot. So I, I actually took a TV hosting boot camp over a course of a weekend. And the teacher said, all right, whatever you're an expert in, we'll just have you pretend that that's the show you're hosting. You could practice welcoming the audience, throwing to break, teasing all the other stuff. And so everybody else was doing like HGTV interior design vibes at the time because it was really fresh and everyone was like really into that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what am I an expert in Uh, literature? That's not going to fly. So I just hosted a Chicago Bears show just to be practicing. And the teacher said, oh, you want to work in sports? And I was like, no, there's there's no women in sports. They all are supermodels like Aaron Andrews or very serious. So people believe they know what they're talking about. I want to be a comedian. I want to bring entertainment into everything. She said, oh, it just seems comfortable if you want to try it. So I took a class at UCLA Extension in TV sports reporting. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's extemporaneous thinking. It's all my second city you know, conservatory um, kind of improv stuff of reacting like this in the middle of an interview. It's all my sports knowledge. It's um, writing. It's all this stuff that I was good at. So I was like, I guess I'll give this a shot. Now, I always tell this story and people are kind of amazed by that because I was a huge sports fan and an athlete my whole life. And guess what? Nobody ever said, do you want to work in sports? No one encouraged it. No one suggested it. No one even thought about it. I didn't get taken to games very often. My parents weren't really into sports. So they were supportive of uh, my sister and I competing, but like they, they sent me to one bulls game as a gift. They didn't want to go. I took my friend. They took me to one Cubs game. That's it. I didn't go to a football game till my senior year in high school. And that was with a guy and his family. Like it just wasn't top of mind for people to think, Oh, she's obsessed with sports. She could do this for a living. So it wasn't until I like stumbled upon it myself at 22, 23 that I was like, oh, shoot, this is everything I like all on one spot. Um, 
So that's when I embarked on the sports stuff just to see, because I loved the acting stuff. I love the comedy stuff, but I also really love that sports validated the work. If you knew your stuff and you were good at it, you were going to move a lot faster than in acting where it's like, who do you know? And have you met the right person and all that stuff? So um, I didn't have the prep that most people do through the course of say studying journalism and then going to get their masters or interning places to really understand a lot of what was behind um, the industry's faults and the misogyny and all the issues. I just sort of like cannonballed in and was like, all right, right, this seems cool. Let me give it a shot. And pretty instantly I was like, oh yeah, this is what, you know, the, the rumors are about. This is what all the, all the stereotypes are about the industry. And um, I had a lot of experiences right off the bat. I started working at Fox Sports One um, on a nightly highlight show. There was a room of about 35 of us every night watching the games, logging what would happen, writing the comments for the host to say about that highlight. So you'd get a game and they'd say, right, we need 30 seconds on Cubs Cardinals. You figure out what the three best plays are that tell the story, you write the copy. And there's usually about two women in the room out of 35. Um, then I start doing some on-camera stuff and get this fantasy football gig where I have to wear the most sexy outfits, more cleavage, more cleavage. Um, When you deliver the lines, make them sexy. Like he's my tight end for this week and he's going to get all the points. Like that's how they want to see you. And that's so not me that it was very uncomfortable, but I'm looking around the business and that's what I was seeing at the time. This was back, you know, early 2000s when it's the wild, wild west of sports blogs right next to your sports was always going to be somebody's hot girlfriend, this guy's hot wife, this Maxim hometown hottie, like they were so interspersed that you couldn't escape that bro culture if you wanted to also get the sarcastic and fun sports stuff that you wanted to get from the blogs. Um, So that was how I dived in. And like early on, I had all the stereotypical, went into the locker room, got accused of, oh, she must be sleeping with all the players because they're giving her good interviews. Mm -hmm. Even if I had just gotten there and I didn't, I don't think any of them knew my name, but of course they saw me. And that was the immediate assumption that I wasn't there for the right reasons. I didn't care about the job. I was there to meet the boys. Um, got sexually harassed on my first big job opportunity where, you know, he's tried to kiss me. He talked about what kind of sex we would have. He asked about like how I, what kind of personal grooming habits I had and told me about his. Um, yeah. So like all the stuff that you hear about um, and it on really the first time you the were beginning. being interviewed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like talk about a you know, you don't even have the, you don't even have the job like no. that he felt no. comfortable doing that. Yeah. The first time yeah. And guess what? Where was I going to go right to HR and tell them that this person that they paid millions for, that was a star was going to be a problem. And I didn't even work there yet. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was also infuriating for me, but it was a lesson because I think it's not that I thought that I was above it, but I thought, okay, I'm a Ivy League division one, six foot tall, former athlete, confident, know my stuff. I'm walking into these spaces and I expect that the world is going to be the same as it's been for me through high school and college where nothing could stop me, right? I didn't believe that there were really that many things that could prevent women. I just thought you just work hard enough. If you just And I kept running up against the same stuff people had talked about. And I think I also was... Um, I was conditioned by society to believe that women played their own role in that kind of victimization. Well, what, what, what did they right, wear? How yeah. did they act? Were mm-hmm. they being inappropriate? And then to walk in and have it happen to me was such a 
harsh reminder that I had been judging other people's experiences and presuming that they were somehow at fault for them. And that's very common. That's extremely a part of our society. Um, but it was the first time I really faced it head on and thought, oh, I, I haven't done anything that would tell people to treat me this way. And I'm sure all those other women didn't either. Were you tempted at all to judge yourself? Like, did you have a moment? Of course. Or did yeah. you, like, how quickly, did, how did you move through that? No, there was so much shame, of course. I thought, it must be me. Do I, am I not doing the job well enough to be taken seriously? Am I not dressing the right way? That was a really tough one because I looked at what I saw on TV and on the internet and the women who were getting the jobs looked like supermodels, dressed kind of sexy, professional, and I was coming from LA too, which was extremely, like, I felt like I was missing out on all the jobs that I auditioned for to girls with fake boobs and like clubbing dresses. And I'm like, okay, I guess that's, they want you to know your stuff, but also look like that. So then I get to Chicago and it's my first job working in the clubhouses for the Blackhawks and the Cubs and stuff. And I'm trying to toe that line of how do I look really good? Cause that's apparently what's necessary to how do I, how do I be professional? And again, I'm six feet tall. I have really big boobs that I can't hide and put away. If I wore baggy stuff, the comments under the videos were, are you pregnant? Or that outfit looks terrible. If I wore things that looked too good, then it was like, they're not paying attention at all to what I'm saying. Um, so I kept trying to find this balance and um, brought it a lot on myself and thought I must have done stuff to bring this on. Um, and it wasn't until I started just working even harder, got the job with the ESPN, went back into the same spaces and got treated differently that I realized a lot of it was just, you were new. We didn't know you. So we assumed the worst of you and you didn't work for an outlet that we respected. So we didn't treat you like you deserved it. And I tell that to a lot of women in the business, like the men will show up and people will presume they know what they're doing and they're good at their job unless they prove otherwise. And the women, it's the opposite. You need to prove that you're not a ditzy bimbo who's sleeping with the players because they're going to assume that of you if you're anywhere between the ages of like 18 and 50. As a lifelong runner and triathlete turned CrossFitter, I am stoked to announce that the athletic eyewear brand Tofosi Optics has joined us as a partner here at Feisty Media. Tofosi sports glasses hit all the marks for athletes. They're shatterproof poly bicarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance, which I 100% need. They stay in place when you are moving. The hydrophilic rubber nose pads actually get more grippy the more you sweat. So they are secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in hot conditions. No matter what sport you do, Tofosi has shades for you. Whether you love tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, or just hanging out on the beach. They are super reasonably priced, which I love, so I can have multiple pairs that go with any outfit. And of course, feisty listeners get a special discount. So head on over to tofosioptics.com and use the code FM20. FM as in feisty media to get 20% off your order. That's FM20 at tofosioptics.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you. For decades, running shoes have been researched tested and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are so excited to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. 
Hedas unlocks the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research, creates better shoes for women that support their longevity and performance, and establishes new design standards to promote transparency in a male-biased industry. Hedas have a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and to allow for female toe shape, a special kind of plate in the midsole to keep tired legs going, a narrow heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take the pressure off our Achilles, and a rounded instep to create a snug fit. Hedas has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've personally been running in the Alma Cruise and I love them. It's the shoe I always wanted and never knew I needed. The fit is perfect in every way. You can get your own pair of Hedas at Hedas.com and use the code FEISTY20 for 20% off. That's FEISTY20 at Hedas.com and it will all be in the show notes. Building muscle can be tough and gains can be so slow, even for those of us who do a lot of strength training. As an ex-endurance athlete who is now in perimenopause, I know this all too well. It can be frustrating to put in the time in the gym and not see the results I'm looking for. That's why it's super important to take the right supplements at the right time. One of those supplements is essential amino acids, which are needed to trigger muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein synthesis happens when you eat high quality protein, like eggs or whey. And by supplementing with additional essential amino acids, you can make sure you are getting the full benefit of your training sessions. Targeted essential amino acid formulas can be up to four times more effective than just eating protein. I've been taking amino acids for almost a year, and in combination with eating quality protein and a couple other supplements, I have managed to turn the tides on age-related muscle loss, which starts at 30 for women, by the way, and I have continued to make strength gains as I head towards 50. AminoCo has been a longtime sponsor of Feisty Media and has supported all of our brands and podcasts over the years. I recommend starting with AminoCo Perform, and you can grab some at aminoco.com forward slash performance. If you enter the code performance, you will save 30% and receive a free gift if it is your first purchase. Give it a try and let me know how it goes. That's aminoco.com forward slash performance and use the code performance to save 30%. Do you remember the first time that advocate in you, like the one who wanted the cheerleading team in high school, you know, when did she first show up in the context of sports reporting? So certainly in those early experiences, it was there and I was defiant in the face of this stuff. It hurt. I was worried I wasn't going to be able to work. But for instance, like with the, with the Blackhawks gig, um, 
part of it was I was working for a startup website. Those did not necessarily have a space that was confirmed back then. It was much newer. Blogs were not considered the same mm-hmm. as real like websites and companies. Right. But because of the specific nature of the one I was working for, there were a lot of people who had ins in the business and it started after coming from major networks and spaces in Chicago. So they had ins into the locker room. So we had this access that was unusual. But I was going into the spaces and, and it, for instance, in the Blackhawks about a couple of weeks in, someone I knew who had worked with the PR said that they had heard that one of the older reporters told the PR folks, I must be sleeping with the players because they were giving me better interviews. Mm-hmm. I think it's because I was younger. I was asking different things. The, the focus of my website was to bring out player personality, not to ask why the power play was struggling. And it was a new person for them to talk to that was younger and fun and asking them fun stuff. Um, either way, not long after that, they took away our access and said that the in-house Blackhawks TV was doing a lot of the same content that we were doing. So they didn't need to have us in there. I felt that that was personally as a result of that reporter complaining about me Mm -hmm. and the players, some of them that I'd gotten to know asked where I went. And so for a couple that I had their emails, I reached out and said, can I meet you somewhere to do interviews if I can't do them in the locker room? So I would show up at their signings at a store, I had to drive an hour and 45 minutes where they're going to sign stuff, wait for them to be done, and then get 10 minutes with them. One of them did say, you could come to like our house. There's two of us that live together. You can interview us here because we think it's BS that they're keeping you from doing your job. And that one in particular really loved my stuff because I'd gotten everybody to know his personality. He wrapped Fergie's Glamorous for me in the locker room it ended up on the front page of NHL.com. He ended up rapping when they won the Stanley Cup because everyone now knew him as this guy. And they loved that I was helping people get to know them and I was doing different stuff. So they started helping me in a way that really like was meaningful to my career because otherwise I didn't have access anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that kind of stuff where instead of just taking it lying down, I was like, I'm going to fight. I'm going to find ways to keep doing this job, even if you're preventing me. And then later when I started doing radio, that was the big one because I recognized I was the first woman on ESPN 1000 in Chicago in 11 years that was on every day, just doing updates, not hosting, coming on every 15 minutes and setting up the scores and what was going on that night. But I knew that I could just keep being the girl everyone wanted to grab a beer and talk sports with, or I could turn my mic on every once in a while when the hosts were being radically misogynist and use my sense of humor to break it up and to crack mm. jokes and to keep them from being able to just have misogyny lead the way because radio had been this really exclusive space that didn't feel welcoming for people of color, LGBTQ plus women. And so having that opportunity to be there instead of just saying, Ooh, I made it. Let me pat myself on the back and fit in as best I can. I within about a year was like, it's more important to me to change this space than it is to make everybody here love me and think I'm just the cool chick who can totally rip on women alongside the guys that that was a really easy decision for me. That's really interesting. Like that use of humor in that space. So instead of coming in with like a hammer, you know, Mm -hmm. because you're not going to, I just don't think you're going to make change. Like they're not going to walk away and be like, she was right. That hammer really good. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. But if you use humor, can you give an example? Cause I think folks could learn from this, like of, of a time when someone says something really egregious, you know, say you're on air and that you used humor to kind of kind of navigate what you had to say yet not, you know, be kind about it or however you want to phrase that. I mean, it's like literally, it's so woven into my personality and everything Mm -hmm. I say that I'm trying to think of specific examples (laughs) as opposed to it just being like, I mean, I, I just remember the things that stood out to me were 
the host would of course only talk about men's sports. They would never talk about women's sports, but if they did somehow come across a female athlete or a women's team, it was either to talk about how they weren't hot, how they were hot or how they used to be hot. Right. Right. It was like, she's lost her fastball or, well, have you seen, you know, Anna Kornikova or whatever it was. Right. And so, um, it was, how do you step into those spaces and not be a fun spoiler, but also point out what's going on and how BS it is. Right. Um, I, I can't think of examples right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was pretty common to just sort of, I I'm sure some of it was just like, um, well, the good news for you guys is she wouldn't have dated you back when she had her fastball and she's not dating you when she lost oh, you. Like, right. you know, just little things, um, yeah. you know, or when they would, when they would say stuff like it's been this many years since a Chicago team has even made a championship. And then I would come in and be like, actually, uh, Chicago red stars were the championship the last two years. Right. Just a quick, like little, you know, um, not nagging just a quick, like, Oh, don't forget about this, you know? Um, and I do think it's necessary. You have to, you have to be likable as someone who's on the air. And nagging people and preaching all the time isn't going to do it. But there are moments where you're going to have to find a sly and satirical and sarcastic way to kind of put some people in their place. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have times when you know, I mean, when you noticed or felt strange about the fact that, you know, you're like you're in this multi-billion dollar industry, right? That's all focused on like, first of all, only like four or five sports mostly. Um, and that's so male dominated. Like it's, it always, I always felt a bit torn about supporting men's sports teams, especially those big sports. Cause it's like, well, how come we don't have, like, how can we don't all show up to watch the right. women play, <laughs> you know, soccer or whatever that is? Like, how did you, did you have that kind of tension and how do you deal with it? I don't think I had the tension in terms of pitting them against each other. I think I, I'm such a diehard sports fan. I was so obsessed with the Bulls and Michael Jordan. I love my Bears and Cubs and all my teams that I was watching growing up that I never wanted people to love them less. I just wanted them to see women's sports and understand that it had all the same qualities that they loved about the other thing. So, Because I joined ESPNW um, at the end of 2010, which was only about seven months after I started working at ESPN Radio and only a year to year and a half after I worked at that startup website. So I had been covering pretty much all men's with the occasional like tennis or Olympic gymnastics. Like sometimes women's stuff kind of comes in and is big enough to, to break through women's uh, national team soccer, of course. Um, so I knew that it wasn't a focus and I knew I wasn't going to have a lot of luck trying to convince the guys to like cover women's stuff regularly, but I just felt like I could compartmentalize over here. I know that this is what people on this radio station care about. And over here at ESPNW, I can write about female athletes and women's sports. I can, you know, advocate for stuff. I can speak from the female perspective about men's sports and the issues that are going on in men's sports. And I think then I, I very much was conditioned by society. I was not a big enough thinker compared to some people I know. Like you look at the likes of Billie Jean King, who 50 plus years ago was already fighting for the equal pay across tennis, was already arguing for professional rights for female athletes. 
I look at Laura Gentili, who started ESPNW and was a high ranking marketing person who took a leap of going to the president and saying, I have this plan for an entire department of ESPN dedicated to women and women's sports and the female perspective on men's sports and women who fan differently the way they watch and believing that it would be something ESPN would put money behind, which they did. But when it started, it was heavily criticized. Mm. It was, oh, are these girls are going to get their nails done while they talk about sports or like, or people who were like, listen, I'm a woman and I love sports. I don't need to be put over here. I can just watch the regular. And it's like, that's great if you can, but we also want to create this other space that feels more, you know, multidimensional. Um, and now I think about even just, I know that was like 13 or 14 years ago, how different it is now. My expectations mm-hmm. for the industry have grown alongside the acceptance of women's sports. And the biggest, one of the biggest changes for me, I think has been social media. When you have gatekeepers who get to decide what people care about, that's radio program directors, editors, TV mm-hmm. program directors, all those people tend to be middle-aged cis white men. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, this is who I'm hiring. This is what people care about. This is what's on the rundown for the day. This is what I'm going to send my editorial team out to report on. When you had social media come in and you had those gatekeepers gone and people who were passionate and advocating for women's sports and female athletes, and then people showed up to follow them and prove that there was interest there. And if you were good enough, you rose to the top and you became something people wanted to support and follow. It kind of showed those gatekeepers, all right, times are changing. We need to pay more attention to this stuff because it's driving interest across independent websites and social media influencers. Um, and also it made it cooler because it wasn't up to the same people to tell us what we should like about them. It wasn't infantilizing female athletes as your little girl, all grown up. They're such good role models. They're all perfect. They never mess up. They're not edgy in any way. How is that interesting? Do we like our male athletes like that? We make fun of our male athletes that are vanilla like that. We like mm-hmm. the everything from Dennis Rodman to Derek Jeter to Michael Jordan. Like We like every kind. And with women, we never let them be that way. And so being able to see them on social media represented differently, being able to have people who actually knew about them talk about them instead of some sports guy who has two minutes on the local news and is told to talk about something and says, Sabrina Ionescu had, and it's like, okay, can't even get her name right. So we know you're not passionate about this. Mm -hmm. Um, That changed a lot, I think. So Mm. to get back to your original question, I think I didn't fight it enough. I really internalized And I think also like so many women who were athletes and who grew up in spaces that were male dominated, there was so much value in fitting in. There's so much value in saying, I'm like one of the guys Like my best friends are guys like, oh, I'm just a tomboy. We were told that that was what you wanted to be. God forbid you're a girl. That's Mm -hmm. the worst thing you can be, right? Be as much like a boy as you can. And that's the qualities that we, that we value, especially for someone athletic and outgoing and, and confident and funny you know, lean into that. And it wasn't until I got into the space and was so offended by the way they saw people like me, female athletes, and the way they didn't respect it, that I was like, wait, this is messed up. Half the guys I'm working with never played, never ice bathed, never broke a limb, never, you know, lost and tried again. And yet they're judging these female athletes that are a million times better than more accomplished than them. And then that's when the that's when the feisty side kicked in. <laughs> nice. I love it. You're you are this sort of combination of that person who because I think the you know, some of the first people who go into male dom first women, I should say, who go into male dominated spaces often do that. Like you have to to fit in culturally, like you code y- yourself in the same way that, you know, and I, I have 
I I've never been in that situation and I have immense respect for those people because they're often like yourself, like the person that then later can make the most change or can change from inside. Um, and then, but then like, you're, you're also balancing this piece of like this, this advocate in you, right. That's like, Mm -hmm. that's what that feisty voice (laughs) I'm labeling you feisty. Okay. (laughs) I'll take it. You won't be the first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, so I'm wondering now, like, you know, you mentioned how social media is changing the media landscape for sports, for everything. Right. And I love that. And it's kind of like democratizing who gets to talk about what, you know, and we've seen that change happen and where money's being spent is changing. And at the same time, or maybe related to, you know, women's sports seems to be hitting this kind of inflection point. I have a joke with one of my friends because they're like, women's sports at an inflection point. Have you heard? Did you notice? Have you heard? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Um, but like, did you see that? Do you, do you agree with that? Or do you, did you see that wave coming that we're seeing now with like, say the women's world cup, just, you know, getting record breaking numbers of the NCAA tournament the last year, like what, yeah. um, yeah. What, what are you seeing from the inside? I think the last couple of years, the, the magnitude of the explosion has been bigger than I expected, hmm. but this has been coming and those of us who've been in on it have known for a long time. It's funny. We had, um, we had a similar joke over at ESPNW, my, my boss, Laura Gentilly, um, who recently left, she's starting her own shop, but, um, at every ESPNW summit, she would come out and start by doing sort of, uh, the setting the ground for like, what does the industry look like right now in women's sports? What have we accomplished? What's ESPN doing, Mm. setting the stage for the day. And, she realized that like many years in a row, she would always say, you know, this is the year of the woman, like, or this is, you know, like it always (laughs) felt like every year we had the statistics to say, this is the best year yet. Like, yeah, yeah, this is all. And then we got to the Trump years and it was like, Hmm, we certainly can't say that. It felt like we were going backwards. It felt very depressing. It felt like we couldn't say all these great things were happening. Instead, a lot of our rights were being uh, threatened. And so that reset our feeling about how it wasn't always going to go like this and how it required real intentionality about continuing to push and not be grateful for or rest on our laurels of what had been accomplished. And so, um, yeah, that's always our joke. It's the year of the woman. Um, Mm -hmm. But we were watching as there were more hours of women's sports on TV. We were watching as there were more stories that broke through onto shows like sports center and around the horn. We were watching as female athletes were getting better contracts, more sports like uh, sponsorship deals. And it was growing and growing. And we were watching as the way people talked about them changed in particular, the younger generation, because so much of how you feel about a thing starts out with what society conditions you to believe about it. And then you can work your way out of that. If you're surrounded by the right people and things, it's the same with race and, and LGBTQ plus, right. If you're in the middle of nowhere, you don't know anyone different from you and all the ideas around you are telling you to fear or hate this thing. It's hard to break out of that unless you get out into other spaces and meet people. The same goes for so much, so much of what we internalize when it comes to misogyny and everything else around the spaces in which women are allowed to, to thrive and excel and, and even just belong. And so I think the younger generation already had, you know, the 99ers and women's gymnastics and WNBA existed from like, from when they were born and all this stuff to sort of set them at a better starting place. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then it, and then it grew exponentially. But yeah, I think the last couple of years, a couple major moments contributed to it. And that's streaming 
and the ability to watch more women's matches without them having to fight for terrestrial space with men's sports. You have to be, as the Sports Innovation Lab calls it, a fluid fan in order to watch women's sports. That means you need to know that it's one day going to be on NBC and the next day on Peacock and the next yes. day on Paramount and the next day on YouTube and yep. you can watch it on Twitch now. Um, but if you care about it, you're going to go find it. And before it was, it's just not on. You get your one WNBA on Sunday morning on ABC and that's it, right? And we know how much media contributes to people's like perception of value and interest and their ability to even try something and decide they like it. And so streaming was huge in terms of just letting people watch and get to know the teams and sports that they love. And then I think um, Angel City and the investment group there changed the model a lot. You looked around and you saw pretty much middle-aged, super billionaire white dudes owning every team, even in women's sports. Mm -hmm. And then Natalie Portman, Julie Ehrman, uh, Abby Wambach, that group all kind of came together. And Abby says in her book, Wolfpack, if they don't offer you a seat at the table, screw pulling up a chair, build your own table. And that's what Angel City is. We're just building a team that's built completely differently than everything we've seen before. Why are we modeling every women's sport directly after men's, even though we know there are distinct differences? And why are we modeling ownership as one person who's a billionaire dude? Why can't it be a bunch of extremely successful majority women who are leading the way? And that offered a path to the WNBA and WSL, so many other women's leagues deciding, oh yeah, let's make this a group effort and let's really reach out and find ambassadors for the sport that are going to draw more attention. And you look at the NWSL, for instance, just a couple of years ago, the expansion fee was $2 million for a team to join. And now it's $50 million in the space of two Whoa. years. Yeah. Right. And so the financial, the business case for women's sports, that's the other thing that really stands out to me is the reporting and journalism that's required for people to change narratives. People hold fast to what they've always known unless they have good storytelling and data-driven storytelling to change their minds about it. And on the side of women's sports, you still have this pervasive patriarchal bullshit from commenters on social media or antiquated data sets that front office people are still using to say, this doesn't sell, no one's watching. Right. What you need is to counteract that with a modern, actual, realistic look at how the business case has changed. That requires investment. So like I said, Sports Innovation Lab releasing these two fan projects that actually have data from multi-years of thousands of fans that tell you women sports fans spend more, spend more hours, buy more merch, are more fluid, are going to reflect and teach you how future male fans are going to have to behave because their sports are also going to be streaming and dispersed across multiple places and how are they going to find them and how are mm -hmm. they going to use them. We're already seeing it with women. You can use them as the business case for that. And then things like the independent investigation into March Madness. We were all sold on women's March Madness loses money, right? That's what they told us. It just loses <laughs> money. Well, yeah. <laughs> and then they do an investigation and they find that it's actually worth $80 million a year with room for growth. Mm -hmm. And that the NCAA's misogyny was so baked in and their belief system so old that they were costing themselves $80 million a year by rolling the rights in with the men for TNT's deal, by not investing in them in terms of resources and sponsorship, by not, look at the difference. People are like, oh, it's Caitlin Clark. It is, it is Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese. It's also that they did that investigation and realized that they were costing themselves money and they changed practices. They let the women use the March Madness term. They started to give them resources. They started to give them better sponsorships. They started to sell them separately from the men because they know that the business is different and so will the sponsors. All of these things are so important to this groundswell, but you have to have the money and the interest in doing them.
Yeah. And didn't we see something similar with FIFA, you know, this year yeah. in terms of like they had previously, they were so far behind in terms of updating their numbers with um, women's soccer that they yeah. forgot to notice that they could make money on this yeah. tournament. The last minute they're negotiating deals. Like, I don't know a ton about it, but it felt very similar to what you just said about that at the NCAA tournament that like, it's just like this old narrative continuing over where it's like, well, of course the men's stuff is going to pull the, the men's budget's going to pull the women's stuff along, but actually wait a second, you know, the women's tournament might make money. Well, and that's, what's so frustrating about it is I think there's such a surface level view of of women's leagues or athletes not succeeding in the same way with, with a complete ignorance of the context around it. It's the equivalent of giving our sons $10 and our daughters a dollar and then 10 years, years down the road asking why our son's business is so much better. Yeah, You didn't give the same investment. We don't treat women's sports as startups where we, where we don't expect immediate ROI, where we expect loss in order to get gains. We'll do that with men. We'll lose 240 million in an XFL season that can't even finish. Mm-hmm. And then the WNBA will lose a couple million and people will be like, shut it down. But we don't see them the same way. And yeah. the context too of like all the little things that you don't think about, think about how much political sway and taxpayer money has gone to men's stadiums. Mm-hmm. Think about how much right. is just built into culture. Men's sports is opt out. You have to choose to try to avoid it because it's going to be everywhere. Every billboard, every commercial, every newspaper, every magazine, every book, every reference, every late night talk show host is going to talk about them. Women's is opt-in. You have to go looking for it anywhere you can find it. Mm-hmm. And so all of that builds together to create a space where when women break through in ways like the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team or you know Simone Biles and USA Gymnastics, you know when there are these moments, they're doing it in spite of an entire system that's built to hold them down, not because of. The U.S. Women's National Team was suing their federation that was not supporting them, that was spending more on youth boys than on their women's national team while they were going on to win two World Cups in a row and breaking every single record for viewing. Mm-hmm. So when when it's happening in spite of all the things around it, it has to make you wonder, what if we actually fostered it yeah, and gave it I, a chance? For sure. And so, you know, we hear this a lot and we like, invest in women's sports women's sports are great to invest in, but like in practical terms, you know, uh, you know, we understand buying sports teams or participating in that. Like you did with the uh, red stars, you're wearing the shirt. Yeah. Um, yeah. Got to rep, got to rep the squad. For sure. What is like, what does that really mean to invest in women's sports? Where do we invest? So I think if you're not, if you're not able to literally invest in a team, I think one thing that stands out to me, and this is sort of like, it mirrors, I think, sometimes um, the problem of the well-meaning liberal is an ability to speak to a lot of things that matter to you, but not always the action behind it, right? Right. You, you've heard of the concept of nimbyism, right? Not in my neighborhood, not in my backyard, right. um, which means like, oh, I want to help all these people, oh, but I don't want them to live in my neighborhood, homeless people, people of color, LGBT, right? This idea of like at a distance, I wanna be virtuous and speak for the right things. But in practice, I haven't gotten there yet. Some people with women's sports, I feel are like that. You have to buy tickets to games. You have to buy merch. You have to tell your friends about it. You have to talk about it on social media. You have to wear the t-shirt. You have to take your company to a Chicago Sky game instead of a Chicago Cubs game for the millionth time. You have to make your outings incorporate things from those women's leagues and teams and athletes and not just the men. The default can't be always the men's stuff. And then, oh, but everybody should care about women's sports. 
You yeah. have to invest your time, your money, your energy, your right. attention, because there need to be metrics to back up what you're telling all these people investing their money. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, is the rating are the ratings there? Is the attendance there? And it's hard. It's it takes intentionality because, like I said, men's is opt-in. You're going to get invited to the men's stuff all the time. It's going to be advertised. You're going to see it. You're going to think, oh, we should go to a Cubs game. We're we're free that weekend. Or let me check my schedule when the Sky schedule, when the Red Star schedule, when the U.S. Women's National Team schedule comes out, and let me put it on there right from the beginning. Let me make it in a point that I want to try to go to these games and I want to take my kids there, boys too, to show them that women can be professional athletes. I want to take my company there for an outing. Like all that stuff, I think is is so important. And once you do that, and once you care enough to know the players. And some of the storylines and what's at stake when they're playing, you'll realize that you have that same great experience that you do at other events. But that's really hard to do if you go once a year or if you're not really watching or if you don't really know, you know, you're just not going to care as much about something as something where you know all the stories and all the people. Yeah, I, you know, uh, I was just recently away on a camping trip and we we walked in as a family to a cafe that was playing the um, Canada-Nigeria game in the yeah, World yeah. Cup. And it was like very interesting for kids. You know, I have I have one, she had a friend with her and my partner's two kids. And we're looking at the screen and the most interested was his youngest, who's a boy who's 10. Yep. And the reason he's interested, he just like didn't even, there was no flinching about the fact that it's women playing. Like that's his normal, you know? Yeah. He just like, he was interested because he's interested in soccer. Yeah, like he loves soccer. He's recently realized he's actually pretty and good at it. And that's soccer. It doesn't yeah. matter who's playing it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's that like interested, like knowing that it, did you see that? Um, It's go, kind of going around Instagram right now. I'm sure you've seen it, that French um advertisement where they, yes. they edited Insanity. all the women. So good. Yeah, women players to look like men. And then you thought you were watching men play for the first part of the ad. And then suddenly they just showed you what they had done. And you're like, you're actually watching women play. And like, while part of me a little bit hates that we have to use those kind of tactics to like get people to understand that like, yeah, women's sports are actually good sport. You, you know, that tactic, I think, you know, it's kind of gone viral, but I think it it does work to get people behind because it's like, as soon as you start believing that you're going to be watching good sport, then you're in. Doesn't matter who's in. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm a huge fan of Glennon Doyle and her book Untamed. And I think one thing that it helped just make me look around the world more at was how many things have I internalized and believed without really knowing Mm -hmm. or choosing to, it's just always been there. And so that's how we think. And I, I think sometimes it's not only that you have to try to change people's minds by showing them something new, but you have to first show them what they've been taught and what they've kind of digested forever. So I think in terms of that ad, it's not just saying women's sport is good. It's first, we have to let you know that we know <laughs> right. that you are misogynist, maybe <laughs> not intentionally, but yeah. that you have that built in you to believe that if this was men doing it, you'd be impressed by it. And when it's a woman, you don't think it's as impressive. Mm-hmm. Right. And that we need to show you that that's how you think. So you can stop thinking that way, but first well, you have to acknowledge it. it. Yeah. We've it built into us. Great. Yeah. Oh my gosh. All the time. I catch myself all the time being like, okay, well that was super misogynist that you just thought that. And I, and I have right. to do that so that I can be intentional going forward and not think that way. And so mm-hmm. that I go into spaces and bring with me this recognition and awareness of like, okay, am I thinking as if I were 
the only woman in the room, the only black person in the room, the only queer person in the room. Mm. Like, am I bringing in all the perspectives that might not be represented? Because I, like, one of my favorite people, one of my favorite examples is always Andy Murray, because I feel like no matter what space he's in, he brings in a recognition of how he feels about it and, and di- disparate opinions so that it's just a regular press conference. Someone's like, oh, this is the first time someone said, nope, this is the first time a man said, actually Serena Williams has already done. It's not a women's conference. It's not about women. He brings it with him everywhere. And that's what we have to do. And I think mm. just being being aware first of how we carry those things around and, and how we bring with us opinions that we wish we didn't even have that are sort of subconscious mm-hmm. is the first way to like get to that where you can go into go into things and and not immediately yeah. default to that. Yeah. How do you do that for yourself? Like, how do you recognize those internally? How do you recognize those voices? How do you bring them to light and get rid of them in your own mind? It's just, for me, it's, it's a lot of work, right? It's so one thing I'll say about this job is that if you are going to be someone like me who prides themselves on trying to be principled, trying to fight and be an ally for a lot of marginalized groups, trying to speak up for stuff, you can't then model behaviors that you're critical of in others. Mm-hmm. So you can't be a hypocrite and you'll get called out for it. And every once in a while over the years, I haven't, I've been like, oh shit, I, that you're right. Yep. Um, I'm doing something that I wouldn't want other people to do. And over the course of time, you check yourself before you say or do something. You're aware of it before you say or do something. Like I remember there was a, a gal that I met through a friend. We all went to a Blackhawks game and there was a heavy set girl that was just like dancing like crazy to a song at the break. And the the friend of the friend was kind of making fun of her. And I said, you do you girl. Like she's having a great time. You're having a great time. I love that. She's just like dancing and enjoying herself. And she was like, you're right. You're right. I don't know why. I don't know why I said, and like mm-hmm. years later, she brought that up and was like, I remembered that. And like, after that, I tried to think to myself, why am I being judgy of someone having a good time? Why am I being judgy of whether they're allowed to act a certain way because of the size of the body that they're in? Like you have to start calling people out and calling yourself out in order to change. And then, you know, honestly, I keep coming back to Glennon Doyle, but Glennon and Abby's podcast, We Can Do Hard Things is one of my favorites because when I started out, a lot of things they would talk about, I would either roll my eyes or kind of be like, okay, this is very dramatic or like, this is like, or just, I just, I couldn't relate to a lot of stuff. Like when Glennon's like the doorbell ringing is so stressful. Like, who is it? Why are they here? Go away. Or like, I hate going out. I like, it's so stressful to even like, just be out in public. I'm like, it's so the opposite of who I am, but because I love them so much and because I was learning, I decided like, okay, let me, let me reframe how I see people who have completely different experiences with the world and social life and all the other stuff, depression, addiction, all this stuff. And as a result of listening to like pretty much every episode, I start to take all those perspectives in mind when I'm out in the world. And it's made me a better person in the world because instead of thinking the way I do it is right or the way I do it gets the best results, I know we need all of these people. We need people who feel this way to come into a space and see it completely differently than I do and then offer their perspective. And then that's when all the good stuff happens is bringing all that together. But I think a lot of people don't give their themselves enough time during the day to be intentional and thoughtful and self-aware about anything, right? It's just get the kids to school, finish this work, watch this show, look at this thing on my phone, go to bed. And there's not that moment, whether it's by listening to a podcast, reading a book, journaling to actually process 
who you are, how you feel about things, how you react to things. Like being in control of your emotions instead of letting them control you requires you stopping and slowing down and asking, why am I feeling angry? Am I actually angry at that person or am I defensive or am I scared or am I passive aggressive or what is the root cause of this? Like, And when you start to do that with all of your feelings, you have so much more control over them. You have so much more of an ability to behave differently in situations. So you don't have to go back and say, gosh, I hate when I do that. I hate when I react like that. And you're always apologizing or feeling shame or regret about how you treated someone or how you reacted instead of being able to, in that moment, be in charge of it. Yeah. You know, what you're making me think of really is like this in the broad context of where we're at with women's sports. And you can tell me if you disagree with what I'm about to say. But, you know, I think that those of us who kind of, quote unquote, made it in the sporting world, whether like yourself became high level journalist or I was a pro athlete, like we were kind of like tomboys. We were like passing in that world. We maybe had certain qualities that were like slightly more like coded masculine in our culture. And so we kind of made it through. And then we're seeing and this is like I can honestly like attribute this to some of my millennial friends who are like, they're really good at like sending the elevator back down. Like we need to, if we're going to bring all women with us, we have to, you know, make sure that we're listening to all different types of people's lived experiences. Um, but now we're getting to that place where we're like, okay, now we actually have to change. Like we've sent the elevator back down and the women are coming up. Right? Yeah. Now we, now we're changing the culture of sports. Mm -hmm. Right. Like yeah. how how high do you think women's sports can go? Like how far do you think we can be as big as sort of the men's sports internationally? Um, or or, you know, do you think that there's limiters on us? Yeah, I mean, I think there are examples of things that have broken through, like we talked about, you know, women's soccer. When we think of USA soccer in the States, we think of the women. That's just the default for almost everyone. And then they think, oh, yeah, the men's team. When we think of gymnastics, we think of the women. Usually volleyball is women, obviously softball, right? Women's college softball is the third fastest, sorry, is the fastest growing and the third highest profitability for any college sport. It's mm -hmm. only behind men's football and basketball. Wow. Women's college softball, the World Series, the ratings, everything, exponential growth and are now the third highest revenue driver. That's so interesting at a, at a time when my understanding is that the men's like pro baseball league is kind of on the decline. Well, MLB is interesting because as much as we talk about how baseball is dying, the profits are out of control. Okay. Because if you <laughs> think about it, 162 really games per season on television, each team has their own regional sports network that's paying for 162 games. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of money. Yeah. TV rights deals are, and then attendance, even if it's kind of slacking, mm -hmm. you got 162 games worth of right. tickets, concession, tickets. all that. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the contracts for baseball players, they usually tell you that it's not failing at all. They're making more money than everybody. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I think there are some things that have broken through and shown us the possibility, but there is so much room for growth. But the ceiling to me is the same ceiling as every other part of society, which is this deeply, deeply rooted patriarchal approach to literally everything. When people ask me, how do you fix misogyny in, in women's sports reporting? I'm like, okay, well, first you have to fix that, like, literally society hates women, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and that is not an exaggeration. You look back, you can go back to like Plato 
the great thinkers of our time. And they still believe that women were mentally inferior, that they could not be trusted, that they were like less of humans. Like, I mean, literally for the full existence of our species, there has been a might versus right kind of men are stronger and therefore they will take over societies and believe themselves to be smarter, better, more qualified, et cetera. Basically because in the end they can usually beat us up, right? And that has been the deciding factor for centuries of development. And also because of things like, I, I'm not gonna get into, I'm not a historian or, or a, any, of, any of the jobs that you would need to know all of the roles of testosterone and you know, sexual drive and everything else and carrying babies versus everything else that is contributed to, to the male female roles. But, mm. um, we have to get through that for th certain things to change. We're getting there. We have more female Supreme court judges. We have more women in politics. We have more women in decision-making spaces, but I think the statistic is still correct that there are more CEOs in this fortune 500 named, I think it's Jim or Mike than there are women. Yeah, I yeah. remember that going so, around. Yeah. yeah. So it just passed. There was like some more. The, oh, yeah, good. It was Look at us. Common name and it had just Progress. the number of women had just overtaken like Chris or something. Probably <laughs> because people just stopped naming their kids that because they wanted to be more creative. Sure. But um, everyone, everyone's named Parker and like Quinn or something now. Um, <laughs> I, but I, it's not to set a, um, it's not to set a ceiling unnecessarily. It's just to be realistic about how deeply important it is that we continue to chip away at patriarchal belief systems about the spaces in which women belong, because we're going backwards on a lot of that. If you look at the conservative right, the intention is to quiet women, to send them back into the home, to accentuate families are falling apart because there's too many women in the workplace, right? It's everything is, it's about controlling women's bodies. It's about criticizing married women who don't have kids and criticizing unmarried women who do have kids and criticizing women who abort their kids and criticizing women. Who, I mean, it's literally at every moment, it's about control and the ability to keep women in their place. And as long as that exists, there will be a section of society that inherently does not believe that women should be playing, should be competing, should be aggressive, should be rich, should be successful, all of those things. And there just isn't that part of society that's ever going to be anti-men's sports for those reasons. They may not like them for other reasons, but there's never going to be a belief that men shouldn't play sport or be paid for it. Um, and that's where I think it gets in the way. But man, talking about these female athletes in a multidimensional way and letting people root for them because they're fierce and fabulous and rich and interesting and hot and sexy and cool and all the different things as opposed to just either infantilizing them or sexualizing them. That was the only two choices we had before. Either she's a great role model or you want to fuck her. Those are the two options. And now they can be, they can be queer. They can be angry. They can be funny. They can be all the things. And just that, I think, reminds us of the humanity at the heart of any sport and what we love about sports and like the point of the of, of the son that watched the soccer game just being like well if you love sports what is it about this one that you don't love what is it about this that is inherently not fun um other than whatever baked in ideas you have about women that are getting in the way of you appreciating it yeah. And I think, you know, when we look at you talk about that pushback from the from the right and conservative values. Um, and when we look at um, 
change making broadly, like different, you know, different, like when we, when women got the vote, for example, right? Like you have, it comes in waves. It does not just this consistent um, improvement of women's rights and freedoms, right? It's like, you know, this, there's something happens and suddenly we have women playing lots of sports. Then we have all these trolls on the internet who yeah. want to tell us yeah. why we can't and we shouldn't. And we, you know, it, it, I kind of tend to see it as part that pushback as part of the process. Totally. I, I, it helps me mentally. Two steps forward, one step backlash. Mm. Like, <laughs> so right. Backlash. Two steps yeah. forward, one step is the backlash to the moving forward. And I remember, I remember actually um, President Obama was asked not long into Trump's term, like, how upsetting is it to you to see him intentionally undo? so many things that you worked at and spent time on and brought groups together and did studies on and like really put effort behind. And then he just goes like this and says, we don't want that and ruins it. And he said, of course it was hard, but then he said the same thing. He said at any point in history, what you see is that major progress is met with resistance, but the starting point of where we're, where we are now is further ahead than where it was before. So what you're chipping away at is already here. And when you get pushed back, you're still way far ahead of where you started. Mm -hmm. And so at every turn, you have to be thinking about those monumental steps as opposed to the little pushback. And I think that's how we have to do it. But also, honestly, Roe getting overturned the same year we celebrated Title IX, while recognizing that Title IX is not upheld in something like 78% of major schools and universities Which is are an not Title IX compliant. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a law. <laughs> Someone sues, it doesn't actually get upheld. So Title IX is being violated and broken in almost every single major school and institution that has sports. And so we're celebrating 50 years of it while also recognizing how much further we have to go. And we're in the midst of this moment and Roe gets overturned. And we're like, well, shit, like nothing is safe. We cannot sit back and presume that the things we've fought for are going to be there for the next generation. And that to me is this balance that you always have to have. How can we be grateful for and present in the moment that we've earned and worked for? How do we make sure we understand that if we are not continuing to push and we're not continuing to be proactive, those things can be taken away. And that includes women's sports and leagues and everything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing that gives me super hope, in, mm-hmm. if, if you will, in women's sports is just the the empowerment that comes with actually playing sports, right? Yep. So I think we're going to end up with these, well, we already have this generation of women who feel more empowered because they're physically more empowered, right? Yep, um, absolutely. Do you, do you see that too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the biggest researches into women becoming more interested in mm. watching sports in addition to playing them was that Title IX opened up the doors for women to participate. And the numbers of girls participating in sports since Title IX began um, exponentially grow. And you look at how much of a difference there was in that putting into the world a bunch of women who have played and enjoy sport. When we started ESPNW, we did tons of research into women, how they fan, why they fan, how they fan differently, And so much of it is rooted in their own participation, their allegiance to an alma mater that had a a good sports program, their intention to be a part of a community, whether that's their family or a larger community in their city, to be a part of people who have watch parties or have friends over to watch the game or go to a game. There's so many reasons beyond the natural for boys, which is, well, I was born and then people immediately started telling me to like sports every second of the day, Mm -hmm. right? Like 
women have to find a different yeah. path because we're not usually a lot of girls who grow up in families with dads or brothers or moms who are big sports fans will have that, mm -hmm. but it's very natural for boys to feel like that's a part of who they should be. And for girls to not feel that unless they choose it. And so all these athletes coming out of title nine and going into the world, bringing in this love of sport and this interest in sport has changed the demos, which is also why a lot of these men's leagues are having to change the way they operate because they're looking and saying, Oh, 50% of NFL fans are women. Some like 43% of NHL fans were like, there's this massive group of fans that you're not necessarily serving because every study you're doing is like men 18 to 49 want this. And you're just ignoring revenue opportunities, merch opportunities, all of that. And so, um, yeah, I completely agree with that. And now this generation is growing up, not just playing, but watching professional women players who are really cool and superstars. I just think about people like Megan Rapinoe and Asia Wilson and Sue Bird and like these women that Simone Biles, that if you're a kid, you know, it's cool to be a female athlete, not just that you can be, but they're famous, they're stylish, they're rich, they're cool. They're going to all the fun stuff. And that representation is massive. Yeah, for sure. I was this, you know, I was the soccer player kid who didn't see a path yeah. like past an NCAA scholarship. I was like, there's nothing else. I mean, I knew that when I was 10 years old, you know, um, and now there is, and it's amazing. Um, so Sarah, before you go, I know that you're working on a book. Um, and yeah. I just want to ask you a little <laughs> bit about it. Like you have, you have, uh, I feel like you have so much to offer um, in terms of your wisdom to the world. What is the book about? Well, so the book is not my wisdom, although I do. It's funny. Every time I say I'm writing a book, people are so excited for it. And then I'm like, oh, I guess I should maybe write a book about like me and, and the world that I've well, that's your, lived in. That's your second book's lined second up book, already. <laughs> second book. We'll see if I make it to a second. This has been an uh, interesting lesson for me uh, going from working like 12 years of talking to people all day as my job on TV and radio to now I sit by myself for like eight hours straight writing. It's very lonely. But um, long story short, I did a story for E6D and a written piece to accompany it a couple of years ago for ESPN about a coach at the time, the uh, running backs coach for the Kansas City Chiefs. Now he's with the, uh, Notre Dame, but he had been adopted, um, never knew his birth parents. And the laws changed when he was about 42 years old. He was able to find his birth certificate, found his mom. Um, she had never had kids or got married again. She had always kind of looked for him. Um, and when he asked who his dad was, she said, I never told him I was pregnant. I didn't want to disrupt. He was off to college. Um, only my two parents and my cousin know they sent me off to like a home for mothers and girls to have the baby. Um, but I think you should know it is your dad. And your dad is a man named Sherman Smith. And that had been this guy's college coach and mentor of 20 years, but neither of them knew it. Whoa. So he recruited him. He was uh -huh. from the same town. The baby was adopted in Pennsylvania, but the people who adopted him were from Youngstown, which is where the mom was from and the dad. Uh -huh. So they all lived within a couple miles of each other without ever knowing it. He went off to college, became an NFL star, became a coach, came back to his hometown of Youngstown to recruit this kid, played for him for one semester in college before he left to take a different job. But they hit it off so much that he became his mentor for 20 years. Coaching mentor took him coached with the Seahawks and took him to show him the ropes as he was making his way up as a part of his life for 20 years. And it turns out that was his dad all along. Wow. What a story. I I'm also adopted and I um, oh, got wow. with my birth mother when I was 40. Um, and she was like, what took you so long? <laughs> but oh, so that's, that's so good. I'm so yeah. glad. Cause that's not always how it goes. 
Yeah, totally. I, I, I did have friends for whom it didn't go that well, which is partially why I kind of waited, but that, what a wild story. That's... Yeah. So there's a lot of twists and turns and there's so much to it. So um, the story, when it came out on E60 and the written uh, won a couple Emmys, won a bunch of awards, got a lot of interest from people wanting to make it into a feature film. So we actually, I'm with CAA. So we sold the rights to macro um, uh, got interest from Reese Witherspoon and um, actually Russell Wilson and Sierra wanted in and they didn't get the rights, but they came on as executive producers. So they're executive producing it. So now we're working to find a studio for the feature film part. And then uh, Simon and Schuster came along at the right time with my contract changer with ESPN to do the book now. So it's uh, it's overwhelming because it's such a great story. And the response was so good that I'm like, I can't mess up this book. It has to be great. Um, <laughs> no pressure. But it's, uh, but it's, uh, it's been an interesting kind of like getting used to a different like style of work and different day. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I need to ask you about that. <laughs> How did you, you know, like, cause clearly you're someone who is, um, has an extroverted part of you at least like yeah. you're used to oh, yeah. that, like you said how, how did you cope you know how, like we all kind of had this during COVID a little bit but how, how yeah. did you cope with suddenly having to sit for eight hours and and write yeah so thankfully writing has always been a part of my job so I kind of knew it it wasn't blindsided by it it was like okay yep I've done this before when I've written long form where I've recognized that it takes hours and hours alone and that you're so happy when the product's done because you edited and read it and done it a million times and it's exactly how you wanted versus radio and TV is very extemporaneous, right? Like you get across mostly what you want to say, but it's not as polished as editing over and over till you get exactly what you want. So the final product's very satisfying, but the process is very long and lonely. Mm -hmm. So I knew that was going to be the case. Thankfully, I've intermixed it with, I've hosted a bunch of ESPNW summits. I've done a lot of podcasts. I've worked for a couple different companies um, doing stuff. I'm going to um, Sydney and New Zealand on Sunday for the World Cup for two weeks with Gatorade and Angel City. So mm -hmm. I've mixed in um, a lot of audiences and crowds and like all that energy that I need. Um, and, and then, and then I shut it down. Um, and I think again, like, it's kind of weird. It's like, I've always been so grateful and so optimistic. I've always felt like every moment, very present and thankful for what I have. And also very aware that at some point things are going to change. Like, especially listening, I, you know, doing my podcast and having guests on talking about these major life events, cancer, people mm -hmm. dying, losing their job, all these things and how they managed to get through that. And I thought, I always thought to myself, could I do that? Like, it feels like that would be so hard to deal with fill in the blank. I haven't had to deal with any of that. And so I've kind of been readying myself, not in a cynical way or an anxious way for the other shoe to drop, but thinking to myself, it's not always going to be like this. And so my, I wanted out of radio at ESPN. My contract ended up changing in a way that I wasn't entirely on board with. I'm still doing a lot of stuff there, but now I'm only part-time non-exclusive. I don't have the same full-time deal I used to. I'm doing a little less with them. And the book came at the right time for me to say, okay, this is what's meant to be. I'm supposed to learn this now and figure out if I like it and what do I miss about that and what do I want to go back to and what do I like about not I mean I was hosting radio at till 8 p.m for seven straight years that means mm -hmm. the entire day for seven straight years who said what who did what who scored what who got traded all day that's all you think about and you don't shut it off till 8 p.m mm -hmm. I was ready to be done with that and now I'm doing the opposite right I don't need to know all that stuff I don't talk to people all day about it what do I miss and what do I like and how can I use this to like learn what I want to do next instead of 
freaking out about not being in complete control of that decision. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very social when I'm not writing the book. I'm currently planning a giant roller skating Studio 54 party uh, because like that's where I need my outlet. It's like over here, plan this giant social event. It <laughs> yeah. has lots of details so that when I sit by myself for hours and hours, like, you know, I have this other thing to get to later. I love that. Roller skating party is counterbalance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's why COVID was hard for me because I'm fine with working all day, every day, but I also need those outlets of major, like planning a concert, going to an event, planning a party. And without having any of those to look forward to during COVID, I was just like, all I did was work just nonstop with none of those outlets. So that was the lesson for me. Um, that and like, I'm a control freak. So learning that you can't control everything. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, Sarah, thank you so much. This has been so fun. Um, yeah. Thanks for having you- me. You're, you're great here. at this. Oh, thank you for saying that. I feel, I mean, I was a little nervous about, no, you know, be nervous. interviewing someone who's so good at what I'm doing as a side <laughs> thing to being a startup CEO. So it's a little bit like, oh, no, no, no. Um, You're great at it. No, thank you. Um, okay. How can we follow you? Is there anything else you would like the audience to know about? Uh, at Sarah Spain on Twitter slash X slash whatever Elon's calling it today. Oh yeah. Geez. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> Spain two, three, two, three on Instagram. I don't really use TikTok much. Uh, those are the big ones. And then, um, yeah, I mean, hopefully next like fall or whenever the book is coming out, mm-hmm. everybody buy it and support it. <laughs> For um, sure. Yeah. But those are the big ones right now. Okay. Well, maybe we'll have you back after the, for part of the yeah, book yeah. release and we can. Yeah. Cool. Talk some more. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sarah. Endurance sports should be accessible to everyone, right? That's why we are so excited to be partnering with Motive. Motive is one of the fastest growing training apps in the world today with thousands of amateur athletes signing up every month and a nearly perfect 4.9 star rating in the app store. You are not a template and your training plan should not be either. Prepare for running races, triathlons, cycling events, duathlons, or swim runs, however your season schedule shapes up, and get training written by some of the best coaches in the world in each discipline who know what it takes to help amateur athletes reach their goal on race day. The app takes the training written by those experts and then creates the most optimal training plan for your schedule, abilities, and goals. Plus, the training is fully customized to your race schedule. How much you can train each week, your current abilities, and the goals you want to achieve in your race. You can use the app for free as long as you want or get all the upgraded features from the app for just $19.99 a month. But as a feisty listener, you can sign up at mymotive.com and use the code FEISTY for two months of full premium access. That's right, you get two months of premium for free. So you quite literally have nothing to lose. 
So head over to mymotive.com, M-Y-M-O-T-T-I-V.com and use the code FEISTY, F-E-I-S-T-Y. And on a personal note, I know the founder of Motive and he is driven to make triathlon and all endurance sports more accessible for the athletes who care about their performance, but who aren't quite ready for a full-time personal coach. If that sounds like you, definitely try the app for two months for free. You literally have nothing to lose. As we head into summer, rest and recovery are critical for improving sports performance, reducing stress, and living a long and healthy life. We should all invest in better sleep. So think about the thing you lay your head on for eight hours a night. If it's not exactly right for you, it can lead to needless tossing and turning, or worse, have you waking up with an unrelenting kink in your neck. My new Lagoon pillow has helped me improve my sleep immensely by pairing me with the performance pillow that has everything I need. So I personally was matched with the Otter pillow, shout out to Team Otter, which I love because it has a gentle cooling effect. And I was able to choose how much stuffing I wanted in it, which is super important to me because I'm doing a decent amount of CrossFit these days and my shoulders are kind of creaky. So having a pillow that is stuffed just to the right height keeps my neck and head in exactly the right position and comfortable for the entire night. And as of fall 2023, Lagoon launched their 100% Mulberry Silk pillowcases. It's cool to the touch, buttery soft, and great for your skin and hair. You've got to go check out this pillowcase if you want to feel great and look great every morning. Waking up for morning workouts has never felt better. I'm refreshed and pain-free thanks to my Lagoon pillow. To check it out for yourself, go to lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance and take the two-minute sleep quiz to find your perfect pillow match and then use the code PERFORMANCE for 15% off your first purchase. That's code PERFORMANCE at lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance, whole 15% off, and the link is in the show notes. You can just click through there.